When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to Conspiranormal. As usual, it's your host, Adam, and co-host, Serfiel. What's up, man? I'm in a winter wonderland as the... Yeah, you sure are. The ice is melts descended. By the time this actually posts. Yeah, so it's like yeah, super you, uh, quarantine. I can't even go to the store. I went to the store, like the line was backed up all the way to the produce, and so I'm just like... Right in the cabinets, got some bourbon left, so that's good. Well, I heard some of the I heard some of the stores actually weren't open up oh, there. Yeah, a, is what know, we I don't heard, ha- we so. don't know how to deal with this down here, so it's pretty bad. No, not at all. And I, and I I got lucky. Like we have no snow or or anything, so that's a it's pretty cool. So we have a guest here with us, Chrissy Elliott. Chrissy, welcome to Conspiracy Normal. Hello. Thanks. Happy to I, be here. Yeah, we're happy to have you. I noticed that uh, you have been making the podcast rounds and the television rounds a lot lately. Yeah, I don't know. It's like you write a couple articles on Bigfoot and suddenly you're on TV. <laughs> it's just how what it works. Sh- what shows have you managed to be on? Uh, I was on a special episode on the History Channel called Ancient Monster Quest. And that was all about Bigfoot. And I was on that quite a bit. Um, and then I was also on The Proof is Out There, talking about all kinds of stuff, like creature mythology and um, like uh, the matrix, as we understand, <laughs> understand it and things of that nature. They just interviewed me about a bunch of stuff. Um, so yeah, I don't know. You just kind of fall into this stuff, right? And then boom, you're talking to s- sweet people like, you know, Adam and whatnot. Adam saying, yeah, yeah. So what's uh, yeah. Well, you know, I mean, that's like, that's, that's the pinnacle. It doesn't, I mean, it's just all downhill, all downhill from here, from here. Let me tell you. My head is just bumping the ceiling and there's just nowhere know, else to go. I know. I know. <laughs> so um, what were the articles that you wrote that got you on these shows? Sure. Sure. So uh, a little bit about the, you know, the backstory of how I how I got into that. So I was working as an editor at California Magazine, which is UC Berkeley's magazine, and was just looking for stories. And one day me and my boyfriend wandered into this Bigfoot film festival. And in between the films, people would stand there and they would, you know, 
talk about all the reasons Bigfoot could exist, all the evidence, all that stuff. And, uh, you know, I, I say to people that I went in, you know, really not believing in Bigfoot and I left believing even less <laughs> in Bigfoot <laughs> um, because it was just so, the stories were just so ridiculous and, you know, like the evidence they were presenting was just not, you know, scientific in any way. However, uh, that led me to Grover Krantz, um, you know, the, the Bigfoot scientist, essentially, like the first guy. And I realized that he was actually a Berkeley guy. He went to Berkeley and he was big in the anthropology department before he went on to teach at Washington State. And so it was a very relevant story. And I started looking into all of his ideas about how it could be Giganopithecus, you know, and it could have like crossed the Bering Strait when it was, you know, still a land bridge and how Bigfoot could still be around. And then I ran into the stuff about all these other mythological animals that turned out to be real, like the giant squid and the platypus and the manatee, all this, all this stuff. And it completely shook me. It completely just changed my entire, like, worldview on on what's possible in terms of like discovering animals um and it's just it's not really a mainstream conversation um that people are having about how often we're finding things that you know we never thought existed um and just because i kind of had a i guess you could say mainstream science background um that was sort of a, a big moment for me that grover Krantz actually looked at this in a scientific manner and actually drew really interesting conclusions. So at first you were kind of like approaching this more like a anthropologist and studying kind of like these fringe communities, but then you kind of, you went native a little bit, right? Yeah, yeah. So that's the weird thing about being a journalist, right? Like, so I have a history of sort of diving into um, subcultures per se. I was a sex columnist at the San Francisco Bay Guardian and Bay Area Reporter for a couple of years where I would go into the seedy underbelly of the kink underground and I would actually participate in the stuff that was happening and then I would write about it from a first person perspective. And um, I always thought to myself, you know, if I hadn't actually done it, if I hadn't put myself through the things that these other people are going through, I don't think I would have been able to accurately report on it. And I, I feel the same way about um, like any other community, like the Bigfoot community or, you know, like UFO community or, or anybody who who's had these experiences and, and are talking about them. Honestly, you know, I I even though I may not be able to 100 percent get it, like I haven't seen a UFO and like, you know, I'm not really into people putting needles into my body for sexual gratification, <laughs> but like you know, really going into these situations. Um, I don't know. I felt like I, I learned something and I came out more empathetic. So you, you're kind of like embedded in the, in the Sasquatch world. Um, you said that you, you know, have this kind of mainstream science background. How, how do you balance that now with like a lot of this more fringy stuff? Cause we're definitely not uh, anti anti-science but you know we probably stray a lot more on like the mystical side of things but how do you personally kind of like balance that stuff and do you find that you have to uh, justify it to people a lot of times uh i do find that i have to justify it however when those people who were criticizing me for let's say writing about bigfoot told me i would never you know get a serious job um it was like ruining me all this other stuff when they actually read <laughs> the articles that I wrote, they realized, you know, oh, you can actually write about this in a way that's respectable. 
And you can actually be journalistic. You can be as you know objective as is humanly possible, as neutral or whatever. Um, it can be done with anything and it should be done with anything. You know, I think that a lot of people think that if you write about something, that means you automatically are an advocate for it, which is just ludicrous. You know, I, I come across really fascinating ideas that change my world all the time, but it doesn't mean that I'm, you know, going to go be a Buddhist or, you know, I'm going to go be a Christian or, or whatever. There are like, you know, I, I indulge in the spiritual, I indulge in the scientific and technically, I mean, I'm somebody who thinks that, you know, maybe, maybe it's not in a spiritual way. I don't really know, but I think everything is connected. And I think that, you know, if you, if you make a decision or you learn something in science, that doesn't mean you can't learn something from a spiritual realm or a a woo realm as they call it. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I guess my balance would just be, you know, I, whenever I sit down to write something, it's not about me. It's about the facts or what I know to be the facts. And I try to approach everything with, you know, I try not to put my beliefs into it when I'm reporting. If you and I right. sit around and shoot the shit though, that's a whole other thing. Yeah. <laughs> I might have a like, shoot off an opinion or whatever, but I think, I feel it's my responsibility as a journalist to let people make their own decisions. Yeah. And it seems to me too, like a lot of times these subjects are about something else and there's something there's other things going on there's sociological things and there's other types of phenomenon and these these different things can be more of like a window that that sets you onto a whole other path of investigating right and so i kind of like half answered adam's question at the beginning he said what did you write about for bigfoot i wrote four different articles for california magazine two of them were on the life of grover krantz early life and then his contributions to science and Bigfoot. The other ones were, why do people believe in Bigfoot? And has science actually benefited from the search for Sasquatch and other, and other cryptids? And the answer was yes, right? Because, you know, citizen scientists or civilians, rather, right. you know, like whatever you want to call them, they're constantly bringing new information to scientists. You know, there aren't enough to be out in the field all the time. You know, there's a lot of pressure on scientists to, you know, work on certain things or whatever, even if their interests are, you know, I don't know, dedicated towards Bigfoot, even if they keep it a secret or, or whatever. You know, these people that are going out there, boots on the ground, as they say, they're really valuable, you know? And they've shown that through time. It was like in the instance of us finding the fully intact body of a kraken, right? The, you know, the guy who was looking for it, the scientist, put up a bunch of posters around the area where folklore had said that they had turned up, right? Mm. And then the people, uh, actually a sailor brought that guy a body of a kraken. So it was like, rather than telling people, oh, this kraken doesn't exist, he was just like, you know, maybe we should listen to these people and look what happened. You know, um, so I don't know. It's just, I don't even know where I was going with that. Well, it, <laughs> I kind of got lost. Yeah. <laughs> it's a fun world to dwell in. And, it, you know, even if you are skeptical, it's still, there's a lot of fun. There's a lot to learn. Yeah. Yeah. When you went to this Bigfoot film festival, what were some of the things that people said that made you kind of like even further not believe that Bigfoot was real? I'm curious to some of the, whether it was just like something that was just like, were there some outlandish things that they talked about or what was, what was some of the, some of the ideas that were put forward? Okay. So I know that this is going to be kind of an unpopular opinion among some big footers, but 
one of the talks was around the Patterson-Gimlin film. And, you know, there's a lot of zooming in on her boobs and like, <laughs> like all of this stuff and just like this and like whatever. And to me, like what I look at that, I really do think it looks like a suit. Um, uh-huh. And so, so for me, like watching them dissect that or whatever, that wasn't convincing evidence for me. I don't think, honestly, pretty much any video you show me isn't going to be enough for me to think it's like 100% real because so many things are faked now. And it's just even, even back, even back then, you know, you could, you could fake stuff and it didn't look real to me. So Mm -hmm. there was like a whole, and then the guy who was talking about it, I can't remember who it was, but the guy who was talking about it, they ended up having to like walk up and escort him (laughs) like away from talking because he wouldn't stop. He was like, so like passionate and crazy about it. Um, so then that sort of lends itself to, uh, you know, people will say, oh, anybody who believes in Bigfoot or whatever is, is crazy or fringe or whatever. When actually I would say that in that small community, like now that I've talked to people and I've gotten to know them, it's actually a very small amount of people that are, you know, wild and and nuts or, or whatever. Um, most of them are extremely logical and, um, so that, that was like, and then I, you know, would talk to people and they would sort of like go around in circles. It could have just been the representation that was there, you know, because it was really afterwards when I discovered Grover Krantz that I realized you could have intellectual conversations about this. It led me to Jeffrey Meldrum, who I had long conversations with for the articles. Um, so yeah, I would just say maybe bad first impression with Bigfoot. <laughs> the reason why I asked that question is that like a lot, there are people that have like really weird like more kind of like high strangeness kind of um, encounters. And I was wondering if those were anything that maybe you had, that maybe somebody had said something like that, like Bigfoot was wearing pants or I saw Bigfoot coming out of UFO and these type, these type of things that uh, people claim, people claim that happened that maybe like on the very first kind of um, hearing when you first heard it, you're like, these people are, are nuts. Yeah, there was a video, I think it was, or a movie, God, it's like racking my brain. This is a few years ago now. Um, But there was a movie about, you know, Bigfoot with glowing red eyes in the forest. It was like a, it was a documentary, I think. And um, to me that, I mean, it did kind of make me laugh, right? Um, These like, because my first instinct would be like flesh and blood creature not sent from another dimension. That's just like my natural instinct. Um, who knows? I could be wrong. I don't, I don't know. I'm just a person. Right. But yeah, it definitely made me laugh. I mean, these, like these little, like, like red eyes peering out from behind the, you know, bushes and like this old lady who's like, Oh my God, it's a Bigfoot, you know? And then also I went to a, I, fest- think, I think I might know what you're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> then I went to a festival, um, or it was like a, like a Sasquatch festival or whatever. And, um, and, you know, people would would sit there for, you know, they would share. We have like share time where people would stand up in the crowd and, and share share stuff. And the logic there was, um, I saw something under a bridge near my home. And I knew it wasn't a troll because trolls aren't real. So it must be a Bigfoot. <laughs> like, this, like, these are the stories right. I listen to, right. Right? right? So, I mean, like, again... But that's that's the wonderful part about being like, you know what, even if you hear something that sounds totally nuts, investigate it, 
because you might come out and you know find that there's more to it than that. Absolutely. I guess some of the the latest stuff is this uh, Bigfoot hunting season. What is that in Oklahoma? Do you, have you have you have you heard about that, Adam? Uh, yeah, yeah, I, I have yeah, heard it's, about it's that. It's bad. Yeah. As one of our good friends Timothy Renner says, uh, human beings are going to get killed. <laughs> it's, gonna be, it's, it's bad. Yeah. Wait, what? They've like opened up an official like government sanctioned hunting season for Bigfoot in, uh, in, Oklahoma. in Oklahoma. Yeah. Oh wait, no, I have heard about this. Yeah, yeah, I did read an article about it. Um, yeah. It's... But I didn't think it was. I thought it was just considered like not real. Like I thought it was not real <laughs> that was like a joke <laughs> no no i mean that there are going to be people who are going to go out I, I saw an advertisement or something for a company already who is offering like um guided bigfoot hunting experience um and yeah like our friend said someone human beings are going to get shot well on accident you know it's going to be bad you know bigfoot is like really the it is like the biggest thing out there in the paranormal right now. Like I, you'd used to be like in the mid to like late two thousands, like UFOs were ghost, still pretty big. Well, yeah. the ghost, ghost hunting too, stuff yeah. was really big at that time. That's when I really started getting kind of back into the paranormal stuff around that time. But now at least for the last five or six years, the Bigfoot stuff is just like, it's just exploded. And I think that's why you've been able to get on these shows because like Bigfoot is just like really hot shit right now. <laughs> yeah, which is it's strange to me because I feel like I didn't even really think about Bigfoot that much for a really long time. And then yeah, it's it's almost like as soon as I started writing about it, yeah, there was like an uptick in in interest. And I I have no idea why. I I don't know what happened. Maybe just because the TV networks decided. <laughs> The TV, TV controls everything we think. I think that I think that's part of it. I, I, I think that was a big like like what was it finding Bigfoot where they never actually found Bigfoot. I think that that was the big um, that was the big show. But back to uh, talk about Grover Krantz. Um, what were some of the things that you know you talked to him about that kind of like convinced you that we're dealing with like a real like flesh and blood creature? Well, I didn't actually get a chance to talk to him because he was dead by the time I. Oh. But what you, then? Then what you studied? Did you, you pulled out the you pulled out the Ouija board and and you talked to him that way, just from what you studied about him and maybe people that knew him. Then, I mean, well, wh- one of the things that made me really fall in love with him was that he had such a good relationship with his dog. <laughs> um, he ended up actually writing a book about his dog, which was this, is this massive dog, and he's actually his bones of him and his dog are on display in the Smithsonian um, because he was just like so obsessed with this dog. Um, in fact, and he, and he had like four wives. Was it like four? I think, I think it might've been four. I'm trying to remember now, but it was just like, he was apparently this ladies man who would always have these like wild parties in his backyard in Berkeley. And like all these women would come by and like fall all over him. But he was mostly more interested in his dog. <laughs> so much so he's on display with his dog yes yeah and i don't know there was just something like really i don't know like fun about that to me let's see other things you know 
like he was one of those kind of spooky kids who would like you know look for dead things and he was little and like take them home and like dissect them or whatever and you know when his other dogs would die he and or like any yeah any of his dogs he would bury them in the yard and watch them their study their decomposition and stuff um he was just like a very serious scientist um and and yeah like i said earlier he he talked about like he actually gave an example of what bigfoot could be which was giganopithecus which was the first time that I had actually come across that, right? Because you don't you don't run into that. People don't talk about that very much. Um, really? I mean, not in, not in mainstream science articles. Yeah. I mean, th- yeah. which is like I was especially for like three years. That was basically all I was reading because that was my job. Um, so I don't know. Does that answer your question? <laughs> well, it was like the Gigantopithecus thing was like the biggest thing for you. It's kind of like convinced you that there could be like a survival from that time period and that Bigfoot could be here because of that. Yeah. Cause like Cripplefoot, you know, finding the cast that, you know, kind of looked, you know, a little mouth malformed yeah. or whatever. I was kind of like, you know, okay, like maybe, um, but the only, so there is one thing. So with Grover, um, I talked to one of his students um, from before, of course his, his students much older now, but I had spoken to one of his students and he said that Grover was very easily um, convinced and, and people could take advantage of him easily. And Grover, Grover said like, Oh no, that's not true. That's not true. But one day um, the student took like, he like made a fake cast or like made fake evidence and showed it to Grover. And Grover was like, Oh, this is definitely from like the blue mountains or whatever. Like this is definitely a real Bigfoot. And so he, like broke the news to him and he was like, dude, this is fake. I totally faked this. And Grover was just like, well, just because this is a fake doesn't mean that, you know, they're all fakes or whatever. But it just sort of puts into perspective that like, you know, this was a really serious scientist, but he might also have been sort of swept away by his, um, yeah. his passion for the topic. Sounds like he, he wanted to believe. Yeah. There's the whole thing where he like wanted he was driving around like with a shotgun like at night looking for a Bigfoot because he was so desperate to to bring in the real evidence of a body, things like that. You know, that was more towards the end of his life. Um, and he was actually trying to like construct a plane or something um, so he could like, you know, fly around and, and look for a Bigfoot. Um, so, I mean, it was just I, I also feel like he's probably just getting, you know, older and we're all condemned to be senile or i think he was the one that they based the bigfoot hunter in a harry and the hendersons on oh yeah i think think that was grover krantz yeah a little bit of trivia for you there but you talked to uh you've talked to rick uh dr rick meldrum right uh jeff you mean yeah jeff meldrum yeah yeah i talked to him and honestly he also like i got his book um Sasquatch meets science. And, you know, he, he had, you know, a lot of um, like similar perspectives on Bigfoot and whatnot, but he did say that he, he was divided with Grover on, you should never kill a Bigfoot if you find one because they're, they would like be considered an endangered species. Right. And you would just never, you should never do that. Um, 
He said he had, I think you told me he had the revelation while he was watching like a Disney movie with his child. <laughs> it was like, he said like there was like an animal killed or something and he just like realized that it was like a bad thing. I don't know. <laughs> well, yeah, they've definitely been, uh, they've been shot to hell, but uh, they never seem to fall down. <laughs> so. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. Well, he's the one that um, like, He's probably got the most, I think, compelling evidence for like there being like a physical Bigfoot, which is like the the dermal ridge stuff that he talks about. Yeah, I guess. Well, yeah, I mean, if we're talking about like the most the most convincing, I don't know. I just think again, and Meldrum will even say this: until we bring in we until we have actual DNA evidence, till we actually bring in a Bigfoot. We've got nothing. But that's one of the reasons why, you know, when I've spoken to him, he's been so passionate about like really wanting to get funding around like these kinds of te- like ser- searching and tests and things like that. Because right now there's such a stigma in the scientific community against it that we're not going to make much headway if we can't even, you know, put our energies into it. Why do you think there's such a stigma from like, because you're, you're a science writer. And so, I mean, you've been exposed now to like these Bigfoot guys, maybe like one that's like, like uh, Dr. Meldrum, that's a little more scientific. And then somebody like Grover Krantz is still a scientist, but a little bit more obsessed with it. Um, And then you kind of dwell in that realm of just like the pure science. Like we're going to talk a little bit about this plant intelligence stuff a little later on. But like, why do you think science from your perspective doesn't, accept the Bigfoot phenomenon? Well, I think that, so in the fifties, when there was sort of this Bigfoot like explosion or whatever, like in the news, I think that was when they had first start actually put Bigfoot in a headline right back then. I think when that happened um, and there were footprints found, you know, around like a construction site way back when, um, people were like, oh, you know, crap, this could be like a real thing. And so the scientists looked into it. And then I think it was like real hot, hot, hot for a few years. But then they just came up dry. And so then they were like, okay, well, I guess this is fake. This isn't real. Um, And then from there, that just sort of snowballed, right? It's like, there's no such thing as a Yeti. Um, This is all pranks, all this other stuff, because it just wasn't, if something were that big, um, it just wouldn't be that difficult to find like theoretically. Right. And then there's the whole argument that like, okay, if Bigfoot were like you and me or like some sort of variant, like a hominid creature, we would have to have a certain population size, right. To maintain ourselves. So we would need to be like, we would need to be boning constantly having more babies, like you would need a problem, food problem, you know, um, like all these things. I mean, there's this one, there's this one idea that like Bigfoot did actually live, you know, centuries ago. But um, what happened was, was humans probably came along or Homo sapiens probably came along and took over their area, you know, and they were only like, maybe, maybe they were only eating food that was, you know, plant life, right? We came in and we hacked everything down and we started building up or whatever. And so they ended up just starving to death because if, if they were actually, you know, plant eaters, but then other people say, well, there's no way that a Bigfoot could sustain itself on plants. It would have to be, you know, some sort of omnivore because it would need protein to be that jacked, 
you know? <laughs> so there's just like, yeah. I, yeah. So, so all those things, like if you just like, if you and I have a conversation like this, the surface conversation, right. Which is what I think a lot of mainstream science is, is focused on. Right. It's sort of like when you're going to pitch a movie, you got to have your log line, right. You got to be like ready to be like, this makes sense. This is what happens. This is what happens. And this is, this is the result we're going to get, you know, it's got, it's kind of got to be that way in order to get grants and other things. You have to be able to, you know, tell the people who have the money, like, this is what I need and this is what we're going to get. And it's your money is going to be worth something or whatever with Bigfoot. It's not so easy. Um, I think that is a part of it. And then I also just think, you know, when people are running around, um, you know, in front of a crowd of people in this movie theater and they need to be escorted from the theater to stop talking about Patterson Gimlin, <laughs> the Patterson Gimlin <laughs> film. I think that also might have an effect on the credibility of the subject. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Very true. And I, th I think too, like, I'll go back to this, like the weirder stories I think have an effect on the credibility too. Are, are you familiar with um, Joshua Cutchin and Timothy Renner's books, the where the footprints in? Yeah. I listened to, a podcast. I, it may have been yours, actually. <laughs> this is a, yeah. We had them on recently. Yeah, yeah. I listened to one recently. Ago. Yeah, yeah. I didn't read the book though. I just listened. Well, from what you listened to, I mean, there's we. I mean, we talked a lot about what's in the book, but um, I mean, do you have like what's your thoughts on that? The possibility, of, like the more kind of like supernatural aspects of of Bigfoot. To me, I think that anything is possible i'm not going to sit here and say that you know there couldn't be some sort of interdimensional beings or weird stuff couldn't happen or or you know i think their main argument right is that because there's so little physical evidence but there are so many reports that you know it's like what what grover what grover would say like you know it sounds ridiculous but like the ridiculous answer makes more sense than like any logical one we could come up with. So the ridiculous yeah. must be true. I think that's kind of the perspective. Yeah. That's what I gathered. Just, yeah, more that through the lens of, of folklore and the experience pe experiences people have, this, it seems a lot more in line with like ghost phenomenon or all these other type of, uh, you know, mythologies that we have. Even the fairy lore or, or things associated with UFOs at this kind of, it seems very similar and that maybe we're dealing with a lot of the same thing. Well, so Terrence McKenna has an interesting um, idea. <laughs> it's a little woo woo since we're on the subject of woo woo and you mentioned UFOs, but this could kind of, you know, coalesce with the, the Bigfoot topic. So um, his whole thing is that he thinks that people are seeing UFOs because the universe is actually trying to shake our foundations. Uh, he thinks that we have gone too far in the direction of what he called like masculine science and rationalism. Mm -hmm. um, and that the divine feminine is creating these illusions in our heads saying, you know, you need to come back to the emotional, the spiritual kind of a thing. Because if you have all of this unexplained phenomena happening, then you start to question this paradigm that has been set for us. Right. Like rep repress things from the collective consciousness. Yeah. That's right in line with what, you know, they talk about with this like Bigfoot being this wild man archetype. And so the more like, 
Like uh, they they really point out how there used to be these more human-like wild men in folklore and in reports. You know, they're like just these really gruffy guys, but it wasn't really a, a question of them being human. And then like the more technological we got, the more primitive uh, Bigfoot or the more primitive the wild man got and eventually became more of this, this Bigfoot thing that's like an ape man. So yeah, it's just, it's right in line with, with that kind of that kind of theory. Whereas with the UFOs it's just it was just the opposite. It got much it got more like technological and more like the the alien abduction experiences and all that got more and more kind of technological and nightmarish the further we got. It's almost like they weirdly mirrored each other in a way. Yeah, well, that's one of the things I love the most about these kinds of topics is is the folklore aspect, like you say, where it what it teaches us about ourselves. Like when I was writing um, my Bigfoot articles, I talked to folklorists about what the representation of Bigfoot could possibly mean for people. And you talked about the wild man, right? It's like for Bigfoot, you know, people actually would like there to be species undiscovered. We wouldn't have pushed ourselves to the point where everything's dying and every like we're destroying our planet and you know it, and you think about what bigfoot used to be which actually there's a lot of horror stories of bigfoot being like this violent animal who you had to like stay away from and like all this stuff but now he's morphed into the harry and the henderson's bigfoot like the sweet vegetarian right so we uh -huh. by looking at our monsters we can actually see what the current state of our culture is like um, and same with, like you were just saying, same with UFOs, where it's like we're getting more technologically advanced or whatever. It's just like maybe we are manifesting these visions of like of of fear. Yeah, it's kind of like we have like the Bigfoot on one side where it's Bigfoot's all kind of like the spirit of the forest. And he's kind of, you know, he's kind of that part. And then we have on the other side, we have these nightmarish aliens that abduct us from our bed and do all these kind of weird exper experiments on us and uh yeah that's that's an interesting way to look at it i think that it reflects it, it reflects our, our our culture and reflects who we are it's um it's like the black-eyed kids stories they're kind of that way too like i've always looked at like i think you had uh i think you have an article about slender man right like Slender Man is kind of that whole thing. And what's so weird about Slender Man is that we know Slender Man was um, created in 2009, but people see Slender Man. Oh, Slender Man creeps me out so much. When I was writing about Slender Man, every time I saw a jack, a long jacket hanging on a door <laughs> or a robe, I was like, that's Slender Man. Like, <laughs> it was so stupid, right? Because it's like, it's totally fake. And when I was introduced to it, it was a creepypasta story that was right. completely fake. Right. But it doesn't matter. It's just like any movie you watch or whatever. We are so susceptible as humans to everything that we take in all the time. And it doesn't matter how much we say to ourselves, we're logical, we're rational, we know what's real and what's not. There's this whole emotional thing going on you know, and, and the mind, you know, the body and the emotions and everything, they're all one big thing. As much as we try to separate them, as much as modern science tries to say everything is material or whatever, it's just like, no, we're, we're, we're irrational um, and helpless beings, <laughs> I think. <laughs> well said. Well, let's, let, 
I want to continue this conversation, but we'll let's talk a little bit about like plan intelligence and sentience. So you wrote this article. Uh, I think it was it was called Edge Science. Is that the the magazine or the publication? Um, so this is interesting. Just kind of like the idea of plant intelligence. I mean, was there something that like that made you want to write this article or like an, an, an interest in this? So actually, uh, my so my editor at Edge Science, Patrick, he was just telling me like he's like I've always had this dream. Of, of doing an entire magazine on one cool topic. And, um, and like recently it's, it's sort of, you know, it's one of those mysterious coincidental things, but I was thinking about getting more plants or trying to, uh, to get plants in my life um, and just like learn how to take care of them because I'm a plant murderer. Historically, I can't for the life of me <laughs> keep anything alive. Um, and he just said, he's like, you know, I've, I've been really looking into, you know, sentient plants. And, and I was just like, he's like, why don't you do that? And I was like, okay, I'll do that. Um, and so I just started looking into it and he said, he was like, so what do you think? Like, do you think maybe this could be a, like, you know, um, a, like a magazine or maybe like a big article? I was like, dude, this could be a book. Um, but unfortunately I had to keep it down to novella size. I think it was like 16,000 words. I think it was. It's still, yeah, it's still a pretty, pretty lengthy article. It's really yeah, fascinating. It was pretty comprehensive for as short as it was. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of, um, lot of, uh, real, really long reference page. Or <laughs> I think it was two pages or something. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I guess I would say like what, what drew me to it before he even said anything was the fact that I was just like wondering if I could maybe get in touch more with plants and, oh, I forgot to mention this. My um, woo friends um, talked to me about how they like learned things from plants. And I, you know, had originally written it off as crazy, um, but in a good way, like an affectionate mm -hmm. way. <laughs> and then when I went to write this article, that's when I discovered Monica Galliano yeah. and, and her, like the fact that she said plants taught her essentially how to do experiments that completely rocked science. I think most people probably are, are familiar with like the ideas from a lot of the, the psychedelic people like uh, McKenna about, you know, communing with these plants and these ethnogens. But uh, what is this, this other, this form of plant communication that Monica and people like her engage in? What, what does that consist of? So, so yeah, so what it is, it's called a dieta. And basically what you do is you take a piece of the plant, could be bark or whatever. In her case, it was bark. She did it with a tree. Um, and you mash it up and you deprive yourself of all the goodies of life. So no sex, like no, you know, talking like with friends, no, no stimulation, no TV, no nothing. Okay. <laughs> Just no you, com completely get rid of your satanic existence. <laughs> Just go, you know, uh, whatever. So, <laughs> um, so you basically, you crush this up and you just eat the bit of the plant and the, um, you, you know, you do eat, you have like plain rice and like plain beans and you do this for, I don't know, a week or whatever. And whenever you're not doing something like else in your life, maybe that you have to do, for example, like then all you're doing is just communing with the plant. And when you go to sleep, people say they have these dreams 
that end up teaching them things about the universe and they realize that the plant is speaking to them. Um, in this case, Monica went really hardcore, went out into the jungle and was just like naked, had this bark all over her body. It was like sweating, like all of this stuff. Like, you know, it was like a trip, but it wasn't really, it wasn't like a psychedelic trip per se. It was like just eating bark. Um, right. Yeah. I was going to ask that whether like this plant actually has like some kind of hallucinogenic effect. So there was no psychedelic effect. It just was from doing this day in and day out, essentially. Yeah. As far as I know, she didn't say anything in her book about the plant being psychedelic in any way. It was just it was just a, about communing with it and, and, and talking to it. Yeah. And it gave her some kind of information, right? A way to conduct an experiment to, to use what was in the plant or something like that. Right. Yeah. So the big deal about this was that uh, it told her that this is what she says. It told her to go back and do an experiment with pea seedlings that ended up actually showing that plants could be capable of Pavlovian learning. You know, it's like when you when you ring the bell or whatever, the dog salivates. Right. Well, what she did was she took these pea seedlings and she put them in these like Y shaped um, tubes, basically they had paths they could go in and she like exposed them to light and darkness or whatever. But ultimately she ended up showing that over 60% of the seedlings would like associate, um, wind as like a signal for light. And that, and that was completely shook the scientific community because up to that point, um, you know, you didn't think that plants were, were capable of those kinds of things. Now, some scientists or a scientist has tried to replicate that study and was unable to, um, but it doesn't mean that it is not mm-hmm. important um, because it actually started getting people thinking about that possibility. That's fascinating. It reminds me of like, um, I know some people have commented on like how strange some of the the like ayahuasca the the plants that have to be taken along with them like how people learned uh to have to make these combinations of these mao inhibitors and stuff to be able you know and they'll they said that basically like they the, the natives said that they, they got visions from the plants that taught them how to do this and how to use it it's it's pretty weird yeah, i think graham hancock talks about yeah. that doesn't he yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, well, so there's this whole thing. So one of the, one of the women, uh, one of the scientists, Saskia uh, Von Dies, she, um, she says that communing with plants, she calls it eco-fluency. She believes that we all have the ability to communicate with plants. It's, it's like innately within us. It's just a matter of us tapping into it. And we've basically, it's sort of like go, goes back to the Terrence McKenna thing where it's like, we've been so um, sort of smashed into this rationalist kind of scientific materialist mindset that we've lost our, our natural abilities that we've had for so long to communicate with these beings. So you start off with this, like the secret life of plants, this book that I think was in the published, I think in like the sixties or the seventies. Cause let's talk a little bit about that, like Clive Baxter's experiment and how this kind of like sets off really like the whole idea of like their plants could have some kind of form of their own kind of form of intelligence. And like, this is like kind of debatable too. So yeah, we'll talk a little bit about that debate as well. Yeah. So Baxter was a character. Um, He, he was uh, I guess what you would call like 
the um, the lie detector guy, the polygraph man. Um, it, I think in he would teach like NYPD, you know, officers like how to use it and how to do things like that. And well, he was just hanging out in his office one day, just like mm, whatever. And there was this plant on his desk, and he was thinking, like, I wonder what would happen if I hooked the polygraph up to the plant. Like, what kind of readings would I get? And so when he hooked it up, like nothing really happened. And he was like, kind of like wondering like, oh, maybe I should like try something else to see if like maybe the water in the plant would change the reading or whatever. But then he had this idea to set the plant on fire. (laughs) And as soon as he had the idea in his head, as soon as the thought of hurting the plant like emerged, the, the polygraph started going crazy like going off the charts or whatever. And it was from this experience that he realized that plants could read minds, essentially. They possess some kind of ESP. Um, So that was the story of of that (laughs) revelation for him. That makes me think of like how the first experiment you were talking about wasn't um, replicatable. And it makes me wonder whether in a lot of these experiments, we're actually seeing a lot more psi phenomenon of the experimenters influence on the plants. Yeah. So, so that's, I mean, in any experiment, right. That's one of the reasons why we have like peer review and, and, and things like and the controls like that. and everything. Yeah. 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 It's, um, it is weird. So, so I was talking to Daniel Shamovitz, who's another scientist botanist that I interviewed in the article, and he explained how the polygraph experiment is completely unreliable because we don't even know if polygraphs are reliable when we test humans. We, have, right, we still right. have no clue. <laughs> sure, you know, it's right. like, and then he gave an example of how these scientists actually did an MRI on a dead salmon and was just like, they saw brain activity in a dead salmon. So it's like the tools we have are flawed. So it actually really doesn't mean that much if, if these sorts of things happen. And I know like they tried it on, I think Mythbusters. Um, they like exposed plants to like different sound or whatever. And they actually got a freaky result. Like the um, they thought about hurting the plant and it would, you know, change. Uh, its reaction. Um, But then they also did another study, um, well, quote unquote study, another experiment on Mythbusters where they exposed it to heavy metal and the plants actually thrived. Whereas, you know, in the past people have said, oh, plants hate heavy metal. They only like (laughs) classical music. You know, it just seems so, you know, sporadic and, you know, all over the place. Maybe that particular plant liked heavy metal. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's just a question of taste. Well, that's well, that's the other thing that makes people like that makes a lot of scientists sort of bristle, right? Because we're putting these um, you know, anthropomorphic, you know, words onto plants like personality and preference and taste right. and all of that when we don't we don't know. We don't what really know. Yeah. yeah, right. Well, a lot of this, the conflict over these definitions of intelligence and even worse, you know, consciousness, they they just become so philosophical. And it was just interesting to see, um, you know, the certainty which some of these scientists were like, oh, no, this is what intelligence is. This is what consciousness is like. It's some totally, you know, sealed and done uh, <laughs> field. But 
there's a lot that's you know it just gets so philosophical it's hard to uh it seems like most of these people develop their opinions based on their worldview or philosophy spirituality yeah so there's this one theory i talk about in the article um you know everybody has a theory on consciousness <laughs> everybody's got one um you know but um there's this one that's basically like it's all housed in the brain right and because plants don't have a brain, there's no way that they, they could possess consciousness. Um, John Mallet, his his whole theory, who I interview in, in the piece, his whole theory is that basically what your brain does is it takes all of the messages, you know, in your in your body and like um, outside of your body and creates a map of your life in your head. And that's the function of the brain. And that is what creates memories, like long-term memories and, you know, like, uh, emotional connections and, and all of these things that he says that plants don't have. And, and he says plants can't have them without a brain. Um, however, uh, Stefano Mancuso, who identifies himself as a plant neurobiologist, which is a controversial term because, you know, plants don't really have neurons or what, whatever. Um, but his whole idea is that plants function as a hive mind because, you know, you plants have you know, different appendages, right? You cut off, if you cut off um, a branch, you know, the tree will keep living. But, you know, if you cut off, and it might even grow its, you know, branch back. But if you cut off our arm, we're screwed. You know, it's like, we're, we're not, we're not made like them. We're different. If you cut off the tip of a plant, it could still live. If you cut off our head, that's it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> end, end of the road. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? outsourcing business tasks you hate. What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So um, his whole thing was that uh, because the plant doesn't have to actually send information up to it, up to a tip or, or down to the root, it can make decisions about where to grow without actually sort of checking in with um, a ruler per mm-hmm. se. Um, it's actually just a, it's like a bunch of bees, essentially. It's this hive mind working together. And um, just because it looks different doesn't mean it's not, you know, a thinking being per se. Does he believe that like it's each individual kind of plant cell is the kind of the unit of the hive, like they're kind of like a hive of ants. So like 
a cell would be the same as uh, like an individual ant in a in like an ant to compare it to like an ant hill or like an insect hive. Is that how he kind of conceives it? Yeah, it's kind of like that, where it's like, you know, technically, it's like you don't, the ant, the worker ant doesn't have to check in with the queen every time it does something for, for the good of, you know, whatever. It, you know, it just does its work, maybe brings stuff back to her and goes off and does its thing. It just knows what it's supposed to do without having to, like, run through that cycle. Right, right. You also talk about about the kind of like this idea that plants can kind of recognize friends and they can recognize foes and and kind of like how that's kind of like the dangers and the benefits of being able to recognize other plants that are not the same kind of plant and this whole idea. Yeah. So the spookiest thing for me um, is the whole idea of the trees, right? And the wood wide web. So, right, so, yeah. so trees have this um, communication system under the ground, which scientists are now calling the wood wide web, where they actually use fungus to transport nutrients and messages back and forth through the roots, right? And so this um, forester, Peter Wohlben, I hope that's how you say his last name. <laughs> I'm so bad with that. A German, German guy. But um, he, he talks about how uh, in his forest that he maintains, they found this stump. And when they cut open the stump, it was actually full of green chlorophyll. And this was really old, very old stump. And they were like, why on earth would this stump still be living? And the only, the only quote unquote rational um, reason for that would have been that the trees around it, its family, mm -hmm. its kin had decided to keep it alive for centuries. And it's just like, why is that happening? Which leads into questions of are trees altruistic? You know, um, when trees, sometimes when two trees spend all their, I guess, years together and they, they develop, um, you know, ways to give each other space, like they won't run into each other, their branches won't collide. It's almost like, you know, um, a quote unquote respectful uh, relationship. Um, sometimes these friend trees will um, die if, if their friend dies. So it's like a spouse, like if your spouse dies, you know, like you, if, you know, you die too, like soon afterward or whatever, it, it indicates some sort of relationship. The other, the other interesting thing is that uh, older trees actually end up taking care of younger trees and they'll make the decision to, um, because their root systems are so spread out, they'll make the decision to pull nutrients from trees who don't need it and give it to the younger trees that may be shaded, that can't grow. Um, so it's, it's all about keeping the family alive. And they've done experiments where they put plants that were of, like strangers into you know, a plot and they found that they were all battling, you know, growing over each other or whatever to live. But when they put um, plants of the same kin into a pot, they ended up giving each other space because it was all about you know, growing taller. But there are other instances where plants who are completely different, trees are completely different, um, mm -hmm. they will still work together if they right. realize that there's a reason to exchange you know, carbon or whatever it is. So you have to think like, why are these decisions being made? And they seem to be so varied, you know? So it's like almost like they, ha like they have their own personalities, right? Which is why we sort of use this language. Yeah. Well, I thought it was real interesting. Uh, you know, when I was first reading a lot of the, 
the perspective from the more skeptical scientists. Um, and you finally got to consciousness being this gray scale and that, you know, these, a lot of these skeptical scientists are, are different from when you find people in like theoretical physics and things like that, who are, you know, a, a lot more of them are, um, think that consciousness is actually primary and doesn't arise out of matter. Uh, you get to that and that's, that's really what like makes sense to me that there's some kind of grayscale and we've got just really kind of uh, harsh definitions instead of really getting to the heart of it. Yeah. Well, so he talks about, you know, how he thinks the thermometer has like a certain unit of consciousness, right? Because it's aware it's a measure, it's measuring the temperature, you know, just the way that plants could have like a certain unit of consciousness, you know, versus humans. And he, he did say that he thinks that humans are, I guess you could say the most conscious, whatever, whatever that means. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think a lot of this in science, this reluctance over time to look at plants as conscious beings, it came from there. There was this book in 1509. It was called the, the book of wisdom it's by this guy named Charles de Bavel. And in it, there was a pyramid of living things and yet humans at the top, animals, plants, then rocks. Right. And like, you know, basically plants barely even existed, like in terms of like, no, barely knew of their existence at all. If, you know, if at all. Um, And so this kind of actually set the pace for, for science for a long time. Um, And then it just kind of became the understanding of the way things are, you know, Mancuso has a really, makes a really interesting point um, in his book, Brilliant Green, where he says, you know, we've treated plants like lesser beings for such a long time. And we've almost treated them like they weren't even really alive for a long time, you know, to a certain extent. And if we can't look at a plant and understand that it's intelligent, how will we ever see intelligence in alien life? Like if an alien were to come to our Mm -hmm. planet and they didn't look anything like us, then we would just write it off as not, you know, not a real conscious, intelligent being. Right. That's like, that's, that's the big thing is that we, I think just people think about plants because they don't move, right? They're not, they're not like animals. They don't move like in a, in a perceptual way that we can, that we can see. And so we, we tend to just kind of take them for granted. It's just like, just, they're just there even though they supply all the oxygen and all that, but that's pretty important. It seems culturally specific, you know, but we, we think a lot of our scientism is somehow universal, but, you know, traditional people still this day all over the world recognize that uh, we're essentially the, the same thing that all living beings are conscious and part of some kind of connected network. So, you know, it's, it's a real limited way of viewing things. It's like the majority of life on earth, right? That we're just totally ignoring. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's, there's also, cause this kind of brings us back to the fear of the unknown and our perspective on things, right. And like what we sort of manifest. So uh, I was thinking about this recently about how plants are portrayed in like movies and stuff, you know, it's like the happening, right. Where like everybody was, you know, dying because the, there's like some wind and plants or whatever. <laughs> That was like what happened in the movie. What a, what a great movie. Oh, just an epic movie. So, so good. <laughs> one of M. Night Shyamalan's best. 
Of course, of course. Everybody always remembers that one. Um, <laughs> so, but <laughs> to the happening, right? Where nothing happened. Um, so the happening. For like two hours, nothing happened. <laughs> and anyway. then also, also you've got like Little Shop of Horrors, right? Where when the plant is actually an intelligent, you know, thing yeah. that can talk or whatever, it's evil, right? And then we also have like, if, if you think about superheroes, like Poison Ivy, She's actually like not a bad person. She's like an eco-terrorist, I guess, but she's like wants to save plants and like has, you know, works with them or whatever, but they're always like demonized, right? And I think just in our heads, we are tr we still like ascribe human uh perspectives and intentions to plants, and that's like running through us, right? So like the concept of plants being intelligent is frightening because if they were intelligent, they would kill us. Like, I think that is a big perspective in our, in our heads running through our subconscious. Yeah. Because we're killing them, killing them, destroying ecosystems. Yeah. Like the, the trees are, the, the trees are going to get back at us for, for what we have done to them. You know? Yeah. That's, that's, that's a real, that's a real good point. And definitely that movie, if it had been made better, uh, you know, it could have been more effective in in describing that, but yeah, I I can I can definitely definitely see that. I'd like to return to uh, uh yeah I'd like to return to to psychedelic plants a little bit because I think this is the uh, most extreme form of communications that the the greatest amount of people have uh, experienced, and um, I mean I th there is uh, I, I've heard quite a few. Uh, accounts of people feeling like they are communicating with the mushroom or the the cactus and um the difference between even if they're the same compounds people taking something like synthetic psilocybin and eating mushrooms and there being a difference in the experience with you know feeling like there's some kind of intelligence they're communicating with well, so yeah, it's kind of to your point and to bring bring up Terrence McKenna again, because we were talking about him earlier, but he also talks about, you know, how people, he thinks people will continue to see UFOs and will continue to have these hallucinations if we don't start using psychedelics to figure out where we should be. And he kind of talks about, you know, it's like the ego death, right? And we like, we're all just, you know, materialist and obsessed with ourselves and all of these things. And he was basically saying that like, we should be using psychedelics as like a microscope, the way that, you know, scientists do. It's like psychedelics will teach us about the spiritual world and about our place in the universe, the way that, you know, a microscope, you know, like gives a closer look to scientists. Right. Um, and I mean, who knows? <laughs> I don't know if that's right, but I mean, it sounds pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's 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 pretty strange, but um, the uh, you know, the potential of those experiences for opening people up to just greater views of consciousness itself, you know, I think would make people more um, even if they don't have a communication with the plant, they would uh, be more open to the possibility of communication with the plants or. Uh, plant consciousness well then of course you have the let's like you know if the devil's advocate you know hardcore rationalist point of view 
there were these raccoons I remember reading about and they all ate the same berries and they all had like apparently like the same like hallucinations and episodes or whatever. You know, people who do psychedelics will see the same things or whatever. And so the the rationalist materialist mindset would be, well, just because people are seeing the same things when they take a certain drug doesn't mean that those things exist. It just means that the drug has the same effects. Right. So there's that, you know, devil's advocate yeah. point of view. Raccoon berries, whatever. <laughs> Tripping with the raccoons. Returning to the idea of just like consciousness in and of itself and kind of like this debate over whether plants have their own kind of form of consciousness. And then the idea that say like, hey, plants do not have like a brain, like we have a brain or like other animals have a brain. So this kind of goes back to just kind of like, this is really the nature of the whole debate over what consciousness really is, whether it's something that's independent from our brain or something that the brain manifests. So, you know, talking about like, you know, plants not needing a brain to have some kind of like overarching consciousness really might lend itself to the fact that maybe there is consciousness is independent. Of the, of the brain. Right. Yeah. So, well, that's the biggest debate right now is, is, you know, in consciousness, right. Is it local or is it non-local? Mm -hmm. Because like, if, if we are all connected, if actually there is this like universal consciousness where everything, you know, functions as like a, like a big entity or whatever, then it technically plants are automatically intelligent and conscious by the way we understand it. Um, however, if, if it is localized, we would then have to investigate how consciousness could be localized in a body that is completely different than ours. So there's a lot we don't know. And one of the, one of the biggest issues is what's called the explanatory gap, which is science does not know how to bridge, um, you know, the scientific method to subjective experience, because as soon as somebody starts saying, well, you know, I saw, um, I don't know, I saw this, this God floating over me or what, whatever, I don't know, make something up. <laughs> Somebody says that, and then like multiple people say that, it's like, okay, but we can't actually see that in the material world, and that's all subjective, so we can't test it. You know, science can only test the material. And honestly, I, I personally feel that a lot of people in, I guess, the paranormal community are really hard on science. Um, mm -hmm. I don't think that science is the problem. I think that some scientists can be the problem. Yeah. I think that, you know, people say science doesn't work. It's like, well, that's not true. Science obviously works. Science is working on creating a vaccine for us and, you know, like you know, has kept us alive for, for many years and is creating all these awesome things. Um, it's just, I think that people put too much pressure on science and scientists to be able to solve all of life's mysteries. And they're attacking a method that is, as far as I'm concerned, the best we have at this point. Yeah. Um, and those within the community, the individuals you'll find have a lot of uh, non-materialist views and spiritualities. And, but uh, you know, that it, these things don't really place themselves well in the scientific framework. You know, you can, you can, they can coexist basically. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that there, you know, we, we accept that the scientific method is flawed and we accept that basically everything we have going on is flawed, 
but you know, everybody is doing their best. I think that looking into the spiritual and looking into the scientific are both really valuable. Um, but again, who's going to put them together? Who's going to bring it together yeah. in a way? Maybe it's psychedelics. Hey. <laughs> who knows? I'm one of those people who don't really feel the need to validate scientifically more speculative or spiritual things all the time. I mean, some people in the paranormal are just, Bigfoot especially, you know, just uh, obsessed with getting that validation. I think that's where a lot of these problems come from. A lot of this stuff is not meant to be um, validated by science and in other things like earth mysteries or, you know, speculative ancient history, like, sorry, you know, mainstream archaeology is not really that interested in Atlantis and things like that. They're not going to be, you know, it's a lot more of a, it's more of a spiritual quest and you can't expect the scientific communities to, you know, be, to, to want to like devote resources to some of this stuff. Yeah. I think, I think that there has been, there's a really big divide, you know, between between science and and the spiritual and and the emotional and the subjective and the objective. And I do think that that's, it's okay. I think if we keep those, those separate to a certain extent, but I I think what the real problem is, is a lack of empathy um, between groups. I think that's what it really comes down to is, is just humans needing to get along. And I think one of the biggest takeaways uh, from writing my plant piece was that scientists, even though they're kind of at odds right now, you know, you've got Monica Galliano and then you've got like, you know, um, like Shamovitz on the other end, you know, sort of different, but they all want to figure it out. They're all just taking different approaches. I think if you talk to anybody, we all really like deep down, we want the truth. And I think people are so often focusing on their differences, you know, just like anything else. But I, I think uh, not to get too heady, but y'all know about the singularity. Yeah. yeah. Please get as heady as you want to be. Our, oh, our yeah. audience is very heady. Yeah, it's fine. <laughs> so yeah, the whole concept of like the singularity, we won't be able to tell ourselves, you know, different, we'll be cyborgs essentially can't tell, you know, the difference between a cell phone and human head or whatever you want to say about it. Um, but basically like, you know, after the singularity, there's this whole idea that we'll, we'll become enlightened or something. And like, there'll be like an ego death because we're all connected. Right. Right. And I just love this idea because we have these conversations about this. And I think it's just because we all know that the real way to figure anything out is if we come together. Like, I think we all inherently know that we've just got these, you know, caveman conquer instincts that are no longer valuable. (laughs) It sounds like we'll all just turn into one big plant <laughs> again. <laughs> well, I actually, um, plants, yeah, what do they cover? 80% of, at least 80% of the planet? Yes. They dominated. <laughs> they're, they're the real kings, and we just don't know it. Well, I mean, they were here way before animals were here. You know, yeah. I actually... Yeah, they they were around before a lot of the animals that we know of, but I think that the first um the first cells were carnivores. I think. Don't don't quote me on that. Look it up everybody, but I'm pretty I'm fairly certain that like when they were in like this big, you know, primordial soup, 
like the first things that developed were actually like consuming each other and growing or whatever. And then plants somehow evolved after that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But I mean, just like before animals were on land, plants were, plants were on land and kind of breathe without like, them. Just like, we pl- like plankton. Can't eat. And I, I often wonder just how, you know, if, if animals are almost like a response to plants, because we seem to be like in perfect harmony, right? I mean, oxygen, the trade off between oxygen and carbon dioxide, it, it, it seems to work and it, se- it seemed to work for like, you know, half a billion years. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Well, I, what I love the most, so there was um, Michael Pollan has this book called Caffeine. And he has he talks about this theory in there that caffeine was actually a was actually an intelligent kind of a plant, um, like like you know coffee beans or whatever. It mm-hmm. figured out how to survive because it became addictive, right? And like you know it's like same with corn, right? It's like so so much corn, you know. <laughs> We're just made of coffee and corn. That's like all Americans are. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Um, and so it's just like you think about it and, you know, if you were to take on the perspective that plants can be master manipulators, you know, and maybe, you know, making these decisions, even if they're just adaptive, you know, they, they found a way to live sort of like with dogs, right? Man's best friend. It's like that, that whole, that whole shtick. And, um, and yeah, like back in dino times, right? Everything was actually really green and brown. But flowers figured out a way to make themselves more attractive to pollinators by creating color, you know? So, I mean, even if these are just physiological responses to things, it's pretty cool that whatever's going on in their bodies allowed them to figure that out. Yeah, the symbiosis aspect of it, too. Uh, I will talk a little bit about biodynamics. And I see that you mentioned uh, Rudolf Steiner and his ideas of anthropophysy, if I'm yeah, saying that right. Hard wor- it's such a hard word. It is a hard word. It is a hard word. Anthropophysy. Anthropophysy. Just as an aside, Sophia, what were those, are those schools called that uh, were set up oh, by Oh, I forgot. His learning yeah. style that uh, right. is pretty popular to this day. I know we've got one of those schools in Nashville. Um, but yeah, for biodynamics is that what you're talking about no steiner had a um he developed the education system uh the waldorf schools right waldorf schools yes waldorf that's it schools. yeah but yeah real influential guy but this biodynamic um stuff he pioneered a method of um cultivation right and an, an idea for cultivation yeah so he just saw the farm as like one whole like living organism you know it's like you and you were like it's all about like respect and like you know every you take care of one thing you know it'll be able to self-sustain so like everything you do within the farm can essentially be recycled and reused and sort of like given back to the earth and like you know um so anthroposophy (laughs) um actually means wisdom of the human being it's a split off from theosophy, as I yeah, understand. Yeah, so it. it just basically he asserts that all people are capable of of contacting spiritual worlds. It's kind of like what Saskia said about like we were all actually inherently capable of talking to plants. Um, but his whole thing was, um, his he had like a symbol 
for for this, which was like an upside down like plant, upside down like flower symbol. And basically the blossom was like coming down like onto the earth and it was like rooted up into the heavens. Um, and so, uh, you know, there's spiritual sort of blossoms to the practical and the intellectual. And he was, you know, a Christian and he, he really did believe that like nature um, and religion was how we would connect to the cosmos and the universe and consciousness and all of that. Um, but people have a big problem with biodynamics, not so much because of its function. Like, I think it's really cool that you can have a self-sustaining farm. They just have a problem with it because it seems its inception was more in religion and like, you know, spiritual philosophy than it was in actual science. It just ended up working. Right. Yeah. What are, what are some of the um, like methods? Cause I really, I do not know anything about biodynamics. There's like some crop rotation stuff and, and other ideas. Yeah. I remember reading a weird thing about how, um, they would make something called horn manure where they would take cow manure and bury it inside of a, a cow horn um, in the winter. And then it would like help like plant immunity in the soil, um, things like that. Like uh, it's just ways like, yeah, composting, all compost is happening within the farm. Um, and it's a spiritual practice where they listen to the earth. That's like part of it. You know, they're like really being in tune. And there's also an, an, an astronomy or astrological aspect mm -hmm. where they'll like match like the rhythm of whatever they're doing to the cycles of the stars and things like that. Um, so, but again, they're seeing success in their farms. Um, it's hard to knock it too much. Yeah. And so it's a, and it's a way of um, agriculture, Acknowledging plant consciousness, I guess. It's incorporating plant consciousness. Yeah, correct. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's a growing movement. It's still very a very small portion of, of people are are doing biodynamics, small portion of farmers, but it's growing in popularity. Um and again, I think that's just because people are kind of sick of the current paradigm. It all comes back to, you know, what we're talking about, where we're we're just we know what's happening to our earth and to humanity is not good. And so we're looking for solutions that aren't mainstream anymore. I'm curious if there's anything that you like really stood out to you that you learned through the whole process of like researching this. I guess, well, I guess my biggest, my biggest thing was just that like, we don't, all of this could be completely stupid. <laughs> like, like every, everything that we're talking about right now could actually like, what if plants actually just are barely conscious, you know? And, and what if like all of these ideas we have about wanting to change the world and do things that are, are better and like research them or whatever, it's all just one big joke. Well, to me, I guess I would rather be a part of the joke and like have, you know, like know that I gave it my all, you know, before I became, you know, a punchline or whatever. I, I just think it's, I think it's worth it. Um, and I, I guess I just don't care if I'm, you know, a little bit of a, a dunce in this case. I mean, I guess that's always a possibility, right? Because I mean, we do tend to anthropomorphize and which is just a natural thing that we do. And 
it could be a possibility that we are just putting all these kind of like concepts onto these plants that may or may not actually be there. I guess that is a possibility. Yeah, it's a possibility. And again, it's like I I would love for plants to be conscious and I would love for UFOs to be real and Bigfoot to be real. That would be cool. That would be awesome. But, you know, there is still the possibility of it all just being a big load of crap. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's <laughs> Oh, I mean I I think you've really keyed on to something there that uh that's kind of how, I mean, I, I feel, too, that there is that possibility, yeah. Yeah. It's healthy to be a little agnostic about, especially when you, you know, you're really delving into fringe stuff. It's not a, you know. Yeah. To suspend belief, but not necessarily just get totally attached to something. It's it's healthy to be it's healthy to be skeptical because you then you end up like that guy raving about the Patterson-Gimlet film, right? Totally. I mean, yeah. you really, you really do. I don't know, so much of this stuff, and I, and I enjoy talking about it, and I, and I don't think that, like, there might be some people out there that are really obsessed with plant consciousness, but I don't think I don't think a subject like that is going to be really get you, like, you know, sunk into, like, the, a rabbit hole. But so many of these other topics, like these Fortiana topics, ghosts and Bigfoot and UFOs, like, I mean, this shit will just suck you in. And so you just have to have... And it sounds real funny coming from a guy that does a podcast about this kind of stuff, but you have to have like some kind of like grounding and some place that you can go and like, you know, go watch a movie or just like do something else and not, you know, leave, leave Bigfoot alone for one. Night, yeah. I yeah. mean, I've just, I've seen, I've seen way too many people. We were talking a little bit earlier about like obsession and I've seen way too many people get obsessed about trying to prove that this is real. I mean, I have... Or being so angry because they don't get that scientific validation. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I have a good friend that is just, like, obsessed with proving, like, ghosts are real, okay? And I've just had this, like, kind of friendly debate for the longest time with him. And just, like, I don't think you're ever going to prove it. And the other side of that, too, is, like, I like the mystery. I like not knowing. If somebody was to tell me, oh, hey, man, ghosts are 100% real, then I'd be like, okay, great, I guess. But it's now the mist- it's not fun anymore. Like, where, where's the fun in that? Well, so this is, I, so I'll, I'll say this to any um, paranormal writers out there or people who, you know, you know, talk about this, report on this, whatever. Um, the reason that I've been able to write about these things and talk about these things is because I have no agenda. Like, that's the reason I'm still deemed a credible journalist. That's why I can still write about whatever I want because, it, again, it's not about me. I said that from the beginning. It's like, as much as I can, you know, sit at home, I may have like a thousand opinions or whatever, but people aren't going to want to engage with you if all you're trying to do is change their mind. You know, if, if that people will only come over to your side per se, or consider your perspective if you if you make it clear that you respect them. And I think that that's just, it just doesn't happen very often. There's always like butting heads. Yeah. Yeah. That's the yeah, other well thing said. in the paranormal is that people really, 
will just like argue over this stuff and then ego will get involved and scandal scandal yeah you'll see you big bigfoot beef yeah. as we say foot beef <laughs> ufo beef making uh, me hungry guys it's all yeah <laughs> it's it's all it's all there and it's just like it's like come on man like this is not worth this is not worth arguing over and i'm sure you saw that kind of thing at like the bigfoot film festival oh yeah i saw it at the festival i saw it at you know the sasquatch summit that i went to and i see it on the message boards all the time and facebook groups and things like that where people will just attack each other and right. i'm just like dude you know you all believe in bigfoot like chill out like right <laughs> Yeah, like Bigfoot has red hair. No, he doesn't, man. He's got he's got brown hair and he's got all this kind of stuff. And like, uh, I did want to talk a little bit about just like, um, I I don't know. You you may have heard me say this before. I don't know how much you've listened to the show, but like, as far as Bigfoot goes, like I'm very much now this. I really believe in like the supernatural more version of it. I I, I really think that there could be. Um, some real things going on, like uh, Dr. Meldrum, you know, some of his stuff is pretty compelling with the dermal ridges. But like, it seems like the stuff in California, Oregon, Washington, those areas, like that could be something real, but like the weirder accounts, like it gets, it gets weirder that the further East that you go. And I've said that like many times. So it's like, and the Stan Gordon stuff, I, I don't know if you're familiar with him. And some of his work, but he's he's literally the guy that talks about like you know a UFO lands and Bigfoot gets out are like are like they're like yeah this is all like Pennsylvania strange this is all like Pennsylvania stuff um, there's yeah there's several I mean there's several people that talk about that but he's like one of the big documenters of it and you know stuff like people. Uh, being attacked by these monsters and like shooting them and like disappear right in front of them and people having these like you know just incredibly like hellish experiences with these creatures and and it gets it just gets more and more weird and I think it's just it's the weird stuff which is kind of why I asked you that question about like you know if you'd heard some of the weird stories because yeah if you hear that shit you're gonna be like this is just bullshit but like trolls and Bigfoot, you know? Yeah. The weirder, the weirder it gets, the more like you're less likely to believe it can't fit into a physical paradigm anymore. Well, is there uh is there any new stuff uh, you're getting into any new paranormal communities that you're studying or, or stuff you're researching right now? Um, well, I wouldn't say new paranormal communities, um, but right now I'm writing for Mysterious Universe. Um, start just started writing for them recently, so I'm covering all manner of weird things. Like I, I love paranormal, but I also just love really weird science stuff that's happening. Yeah. For example, like the Australian government is considering giving carp herpes to control carp populations. Which is really strange. <laughs> yeah. How, how does somebody think about that? Yeah. Well, it's just like, so it's like a very specific uh, form of herpes, like specialized for carp. Um, and, you know, there, but there's a big debate among scientists right now about whether or not it could actually affect, you know, other species. And they want to put it in the water supply 
which seems wrong. <laughs> so, so there's like this debate going on right now, but it's just like, those kinds of things are just so fascinating to me. You know, that is just as strange to me as Bigfoot being real. It's yeah. just like, we're, we're having these conversations about considering giving herpes to carp. <laughs> like we're really approaching a science fiction world. Yeah. And, and how is that going to backfire on the human population? Yeah. Like what are, what are the effects are going to be? Yeah. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. So, I mean, I'll just be publishing all kinds of weird stuff. You know, you, you know, follow me on the internet, Chrissy Elliott all over the place. Um, Oh, spell my last name, everyone. It's one L and one T, Elliot, E-L-I-O-T. Remember that because I'm related to T.S. Elliot, and he spells his last name E-L-I-O-T. Oh, really? What's the relation? He is, he's either, he's like a great, great uncle or, or a cousin. It's one of those. <laughs> we like try. We like tried to figure it out on the tr like the tree, but it was just too complicated. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The the important thing is is that I've got some sort of Elliot blood in my veins. Yeah. Do you plan to write a book or anything like that in the future? Oh, I so I would love I would love to write a book. Um, I actually am tempted to go more fiction. Um, cool. Because I've been doing that lately. Uh, just because I've been doing straight up journalism for the last decade and I kind of just want to make shit up. Yeah. <laughs> so, but yeah, right now, no exact plans for a book, but I, but I have a ton of short stories that I've been submitting. So maybe you'll see some of that. coming. Cool. And where can everyone find you on online and, and find your writings? Yeah. Uh, Chrissy Elliott.com. Great place to go. Twitter uh, slash Chrissy Elliott. Um, Instagram. You find me there. Oh, and on Facebook, I'm the Chrissy Elliott because like there can only be one. <laughs> there could be only one. Yes. <laughs> so yeah, fi find me, send me scoops. If there's any weird sciences, there's any cool stuff happening, you know, I, I want to know about it. Bring it to me. If you find Bigfoot, you have the real evidence of Bigfoot. I want to break that story. Bring it to me. Um, yeah, I want to hear from you. Yes. Cool. We want Chrissy to uh, break the Bigfoot story once and for all. Bagged and tagged. So. All right. Excellent. Thank you so much, Chrissy, for uh, for uh, hanging out with us tonight. Uh, we're going to close out the show. And uh, guys, we'll be right back on Conspiracy Normal. Okay, welcome back to Conspiracy Normal, guys. That was a really cool interview with Chrissy Elliott. Was glad, really glad to have her on. Talk about plant sentience and intelligence and Bigfoot, which apparently is one of her passions. And the whole questions around plant intelligence and consciousness really was a, uh, you know, got to the heart of a lot of just uh, questions about consciousness in general so and you know scientism versus spirituality and quantum physics and everything else was kind of contained within that uh microcosm so it was pretty it's pretty fun to to talk about yeah i find it's uh i find that stuff uh really interesting um that the, these whole concepts um and like 
the whole thing is in like this little meta exercise that you can do of like we just view these things through our lens and so we tend like i said before to kind of like anthropomorphize and we put on like our own intelligence onto what like a plant intelligence should be and i thought that was interesting what uh, she kind of quoted michio kaku and the whole idea that how are we going to know what um a extraterrestrial intelligence is going to be like if we don't understand the intelligences that are right here on this planet and then you know you mentioned like fungus which is totally separate thing to plants like that's a whole other issue of intelligence there i think those are like the largest organisms on the planet right yeah they they can be there was that episode of the x-files Remember where they, where they were like trapped in the, like that gigantic fungus? Yeah, right. Yeah, that was crazy. And they were having all these like weird hallucinations, and they figured out they were trapped in that thing. Yeah, I, I gotta say, you know, personally, um, my uh, the the influence uh, I really got from my childhood from Native Americans, you know, has really never left. As far as I have always kind of maintained a, a animistic way of looking at all all life forms on the planet, you know, and, um, I definitely think that plants have some kind of consciousness in our, you know, but I'm a bit of an em- emanationist too, as far as, you know, I think that we all living things are kind of a uh, manifestation of the same kind of consciousness or spiritual forces or whatever you want to call it coming, you know, into this, uh, into this realm. Yeah, I do too. I think that there's, I think that there's definitely, I think everything has its own kind of consciousness. I think that there's an overarching consciousness that really like supersedes reality. And our world is probably a manifestation of that. Um, There could be some, I guess there's a little bit of a Gnostic attitude there as well. The kind of like the idea of the emanations and those type of things. Um, So... We guys, uh, we are gearing up for the Strange Realities Conference for this year. And even though it is February, uh, we have um, set the dates, which are going to be October 15th, 16th, and 17th. We'll have more announcements of exactly how we're going to do it and how it's going to happen. Last year we did it online uh, only. We're hoping this year to do a form of of some kind of hybrid. This is all dependent on the vaccines and how all this goes. It's February as we're recording this and uh, we're still a good like uh, eight months away. But um, we're at the moment just kind of working on the lineup and so that's basically the only announcements that, that I have about uh, Strange Realities at this moment. But it is going to happen, uh, no matter what this year. So we hope that you guys can join us in some form. Uh, well, in the next few episodes, we're going to have a better uh, grip on what we're going to do. So, And you just stay tuned to this podcast feed or to YouTube and you'll find out, you know, what's going on. So, but uh, we'd love to have you guys come join us either way you can, October 15th through 17th of this year. And of course, we're getting together those special VIP experiences for our um, 
different patron members, especially for the ancient circle of strange realities. Yes, yes, the ancient circle of strange realities, which is $20 on our Patreon. And uh, if you go to patreon.com slash conspiranormal, you can join the International Association of Conspiranormalists, which is $5 a month. The Mystic Crew, which is $10. And the order that Surfield just caught, just talked about. So for 20. Yeah. And, uh, and you get, and you get t-shirts on that level. Yeah. Hopefully after this, uh, or, or before this broadcast, um, we have had our second meaning of the mystic crew with presentations and special guests, uh, that you get access to. So I already know that was that we had a ball and uh, looking forward to next month's. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. All right, guys, we are going to uh, we are going to close out the show. We hope you guys have had a good time tonight, uh, or today, or whenever you're listening. Uh, so, thank you, guys. We will be back next time with a, an awesome special guest, and come join us on Patreon, where we uh, are going to talk about. Uh, something that uh, you guys are going to enjoy so uh hit us back up next week on conspiranormal if you would like to help the show please consider becoming a patreon at www.patreon.com slash conspiranormal or leave a one-time donation at conspiranormal.com and please check out our YouTube channel Conspiranormal Podcast When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.